Good morning. Those of you who went to the marriage retreat, just grateful that you went. I, I, this is a church full of some really great couples and got to know some of them, and they, they're a little odd, too, sometimes, if you got to see any of the redneck pictures. But those of you who are the men, the, the husbands, the book booklets that we handed out at the uh, retreat are in the hallway with the added section for your devotionals and your dares, okay? I told you it'd be there, and it's there. For the ladies, I told you it'd be there, and it's ready, but the copier did not cooperate. Um, the amount of success we have with Xerox is zero. Okay, so, uh, so here's what we're going to do. You send me your email address, sfurby at live.com. Send it to me, and I will send it to you so you can get started. But by Wednesday night, we will have them on that table as well, all ready for you to go in hard copy. So I want you to be able to get started, and you guys are going to have lots of fun over the next 40 or 50 days uh, together. So remember that. Grab that in the hallway. If, you're, if your folder is still there at the end of the night, I will know that you do not love God. You do not love your wife. And uh, I'm sending Paul Wallace for a three-hour counseling session this week at your house. That's going to get every one of them taken out. Tonight, Sunday night serves something different. Please, we're not making this an an eight-course meal. You know, we do that with potluck sometimes. Bring some sandwiches. We're going to have some chips. We're going to have some waters and some tea or something. We're going to gather there, and we're going to talk about some things, but we're not just going to have this huge course of meal. We're just going to have sandwiches and chips and talk about a service opportunity that's presented itself to us. And every month, we're going to try to do this to give you an opportunity to stretch your spiritual service muscles here at Valley View. We have a great one for next month, and we're going to unveil it tonight. You can sign up for it. And we're going to do a couple of things while we're there as well. But we're just going to have fellowship. We're going to have great prayer and time together as a serving church. Matthew chapter 8 is where we'll be. Matthew chapter 8. Beginning, well, I'm just going to let Tony. Tony read it, so we're just going to leave it like that. Here's the question for you. And stop me if you've heard this one. Just stop me if you've heard it. Why did Jesus cross the sea? What do you think? Why did Jesus cross the sea? Get the other side. See, you've read ahead already. Is that somebody who came to early service? No, the thing is you thought, oh, we have a brilliant young uh, uh, gospel preacher who's going to give us a neat response to that. That's what you were thinking, wasn't it? We've got to stay biblical. And I want you to look at the text with me. I want you to see that Jesus did this. In verse 18, there were a bunch of people clamoring to hear Jesus. And he says, nope, no more. We're stopping the crowd. We're stopping this growing movement. We're going to stop right here. We're going to get in a boat and go to the other side. So all these people, he, ready to listen, and he says, nope, we've got to get to the other side. And there's two people say, I want to get in the boat with you and go. No, no, you guys aren't ready. You aren't committed yet. Only committed followers in this boat. And we're going to go to the other side. And to get to the other side, they experience, as you know, this horrendous storm that threatens to totally swamp them and drown them and all. So this is going to be a costly trip. This is going to be a scary trip, but Jesus has got to get to the other side. And given what he was willing to do to get there, there must be something really special on the other side, right? And so we're waiting with bated breath as we go, okay, something really good's over there because he left a lot and he risked a lot to get there. And he lands on the other side and suddenly two guys scream like banshee chickens with broken hips. 
running down toward him, just screaming bloody murder. And before they've done this, these two guys have been doing this, doesn't say how long, but for a long time. They're full of a demon. They are possessed by a demon. They live in the tombs. Tombs are unclean places for Jews. And so these demon-possessed men end up leaving their homes, and they're living in tombs, and they run out here. And it says people have been walking by this place for a long time, but nobody walks anymore. Nobody comes there anymore. The foot traffic is gone because when he comes out, when these two guys come out and you're walking, they're violent They'll beat you up, they will hurt you, and everybody knows it, so everybody steers clear of this area now. What used to be a well-worn path is getting weedy, right? And here comes Jesus. This happens to be where he lands. He lands the boat there, and he gets out, and these two guys come running. Now, this is going to be really made worse by the other Gospels who say they're naked as the day they were born. That creeps me out just a little more, but... Matthew doesn't say that, so I'll leave that detail out, and you can kind of put that in your head if you want to. These guys come running down to him, and I think they're thinking, we're going to scare this group of people off just like everybody else, but as they start running down there, they come to a screeching halt because this guy is different than any other guy they've ever met. This guy, instead of being scared, stands there with no fear whatsoever. Now, this is interesting. Demon possession. I have people ask me about this all the time, and I wonder about this. I'm a wanderer person, so I've wondered what is demon possession. There's no demon possession at all in the Old Testament. Don't get any indication. There's none after the New Testament. I have no idea what this is, but it's relegated, apparently, limited to this one period of time when Jesus is here. Apparently, they're given extra power to actually go in and possess people. And people ask, do you still believe in it? Well, only when I'm on a youth trip overnight after they've drank monster drinks. That's the only time I've ever thought about demon-possessed people. That's only time. Michael's well familiar with this. In fact, I think he's got one sometimes on these trips. He joins them, too. Other than that, I, I, I don't guess there are, I don't know. We don't know anything about the demonic. Really, we know it exists. The Bible is very clear it exists even today, but it doesn't say a lot about this. But I'm going to tell you this. This story has the demons teaching us a few things. The demons teach us stuff that Scripture doesn't teach yet when it comes to this time period. Here's the first thing you're going to learn. Demons recognize Jesus very clearly. They know who Jesus is. These two guys come screaming up and think, we're going to run these people off just like everybody else. And then they stop dead in their tracks and they say, we know who you are. You are the Son of God. Amazing power in Jesus just in his person. Now here's a funny thing. Not only do they believe who he is and know who he is, but they confess his identity you are the Son of God. And I'm going to tell you this. this. This confirms what James says in James chapter 2. Even the demons believe and tremble. These demons come up there ready to scare him off, and they get down there, and they're made scared because Jesus stops the fear and puts it in you. That's what happens when the Son of God comes. But listen to me. Just because you believe doesn't make you something special. And just because you stand before a group of people and believe, I believe he's the Son of God, doesn't make you special. Demons do that too. If it, if it comes to just believing and confessing and thinking that's enough to change your life, I'm going to tell you, I'll give you a blue ribbon for that, and you stand right there next to Satan himself. He believes too. He confesses too. But it's not enough. 
What's it take then? That confession, that belief about who Jesus is, and that confession of his role and position must be preceded by a posture of submission and must proceed into a life of obedience. If it doesn't, you're just right there with the demons. So be careful about thinking that obedience or belief and confession is all that. There's nothing really unique about believing in Jesus and confessing his name. That alone is not enough. The demons prove that to us. Second thing you know is that demons know there's a time coming when they'll be tormented. This is the weirdest part of this story to me. They look at him and say, we know who you are. And they further recognize Jesus is the one who will give the word when their destiny is secured. Jesus is going to be the one to say, you guys are gone. You're evil, you're demons, you're wicked, you're sinful, you're gone to the lake of torment. Jesus is the one who's going to trigger the end time. We are waiting for Jesus to come to set things right. And if you're like me and you're sick of the evil, you're sick of the death, and you're sick of the sin, you can't wait till he comes back and sets this right. You can't. But the demons look at him and they know exactly who he is. And they say, Jesus, we know who you are, but we're looking at our watch. Aren't you a tad bit early? We're thinking there's a few generations left. Demons are like Christians. They all want to, except the opposite place. Demons want to go to hell. They just don't want to go right now, right? Christians want to go to heaven, just not, just not right now. The demons look at him and they realize who he is and they say, we know that you're the one to trigger the end time, to put us into our fate. You're the one who's going to give the word and render our sentence. We know that, but we think it's a little early, isn't it? We don't know that from anywhere else in Scripture till you get to some later letters of Paul into the book of Revelation. But the demons already know that. The demons know that their days are numbered. They know who's going to bring an end result to all this. And what it tells me is this. When Jesus came, he started the end. Jesus is the beginning of the end. And because of that, he can make stills, storms be stilled. He can th throw out evil spirits. He can cause the sickness to go away. But I'm going to tell you this. Until he comes back, it's all going to stay like this until he gives the final word at his return. The demons know this. A third truth, this comes from this passage, but also Matthew chapter 12. You know the parable, the parable of the man who has the evil demons and it's driven out of him, but he doesn't replace them and so the evil demons come back and it's worse than it was before. It's on the screen next. Here's what's interesting is when a demon leaves a person, he will go out there and he will look for someone else to inhabit. A demon really wants a physical body to indwell. He can't stand the restlessness of being out there just kind of roaming. Not only that, it says he goes in waterless places. Demons don't like water. Demons don't like water. Now, this story has nothing to do with baptism, but I'm going to make it about baptism because I'm a Church of Christ preacher and you're in a Church of Christ building. And I'm preaching in front of a thing, I think, that has water in it. <laughs> and so we are sitting here all the time with water here. Now here's what we know about demons. They're looking for people to indwell, and they cannot stand water. And so here's Jesus. They think they're going to get the upper hand. And that, 
I've already foreshadowed some of what's going to happen here. But the thing about the demons is that they cannot stand water. And so what happens to a believer who comes and says, I, I want to confess Jesus as Lord. I believe in him. I want to confess him. Okay, well, if you want to believe and you want to confess, you need to go a little further. You need to drive that demon out of your life. And you know how you drive demons out of people's lives? Water! Submerge them in water and it drives the evil demon out. I bet if I'd been at Tony Pearson's baptism, he would have been writhing and convulsing coming in that water and going out of that one. That evil spirit coming out? I don't know, I don't know, really, if that's true. But sure sounds like a good point you could make from this story. So don't go out saying he thinks it's about baptism. It's not about baptism, but it's in there. I mean, you can, right? Fourth thing about evil spirits, what do you have to do with us is the first question off their lips. What do you have to do with us? And the answer is nothing. Jesus and evil do not coexist. They do not peacefully live in the same place. And when Jesus arrives, the spirit has to go. When Jesus comes in, evil has to depart. They cannot live in the same real estate. They cannot have the same domain. And so when Jesus comes into a believer's life, he's not going to let evil remain in you. That's just polar opposites. It's mutually exclusive, and there's no way. And so Jesus doesn't give them till sundown. He doesn't give them to a count of three. These demons realize very, very quickly their residence is lost, and they've got to go looking for some new housing. And so they look around, and they see another thing that's unclean in the area. It's a Gentile area. They see a herd of pigs nearby, and the, the demons make a request of Jesus, and ironically, Jesus grants it. Let us go into those pigs because demons don't like being disembodied spirits. They want to be in something. They want a house to live in, a living being. And so Jesus gives them permission, and they go into those pigs. Those pigs get spooked, and they just go like in a mass trove down, down the steep bank and into the water, and the demons end up getting the thing they hated worse, and that's water. Now, I know right now there's going to be a stressful, tense moment in heaven when Christian Addison Brown gets there and says, Jesus, what, what's the deal about hurting these pigs? Right? I don't know. I don't know how Jesus can justify the whole loss of pigs in order to save these people, but I'm going to tell you something. The value of a human soul is worth, worth more than every other animal on the planet. It is worth more than that. And Jesus, I'm not sure how much he knew was going to happen about this, but it's just so interesting. The weird thing is, of course, you know, these people go in, these, these people who are tending these pigs go into town, and they tell the people everything that had happened, and it's just in a small town, this is big news. You know, when you're in a small town, this stuff is getting around fast. And they all come out. It says the whole city came out. I, that's just fascinating. And they come out, and they, they get to know this guy, and they see what happened, and they immediately say, Jesus, you need to leave. Jesus, you need to go. 
This is a venture, a very short venture into Gentile territory. Jesus came to preach to Jews only, but he has a few little moments where he, he delves into Jewish territory as a foreshadow of the story. One of these days, this gospel is going to come to you Gentiles for you to completely open the kingdom. Not yet, but he gives these just few moments like this, gives them a chance to hear, and that's where he's at. He's in Gentile territory, and these people come out and say, you've got to go. And that's my question. Why do they make him leave? Or maybe I want to turn it around in the positive way and say this. Why couldn't Jesus stay? Why wouldn't you want him to stay? You bring this guy into town, what kind of thing could he do? And the reason why I want to ask this question is because every one of you is going to make this decision this morning again. Maybe you've made it before, but this is the beginning of a new week. This is the beginning of a new day, and you've got to ask this again. Are you going to let Jesus stay in your life and call the shots, or are you going to say, no, thank you, and leave? That's your options, and you're going to choose one today when you leave. You're going to choose to continue, yes, letting him stay in your life, or are you going to say, no, I'm not letting him stay. I'm tired of him reordering my life. You're going to make these choices. Every single one of you, whether you make a, f a forward response or not, as you're leaving, you are going to decide. These people said, you got to go. Why? Number one, Jesus is going to cost you something. Jesus coming into your life will cost you something. And anybody, whether a TV preacher or a live preacher in front of you, anyone who tells you that as soon as you hand your life over to him, everything fixes itself and everything goes right and he blesses you with flowers and smell good stuff, is a liar. Jesus is going to cost you something. There's too much in there in Scripture to prove this. The rich young ruler comes up to Jesus, and it says in there, there's one thing I lack. He just feels like there's one thing missing, and he comes up, and Jesus says, I'll tell you what it is. Your wealth is in the way of God, and you've got to get rid of it and then follow God, and he can't do it. That's the one thing that stands between him and a right relationship with God and eternity with him, and he cannot do it. And Demas fell in love with the present world. He became so enamored with the stuff of this world that he gave up the kingdom for it. And I'm going to tell you the number one thing that American Christians or American people are going to choose over Jesus, it's going to be their stuff. I'll give you an example out of Acts chapter 19. Jesus, not Jesus, Paul is preaching to the people at Ephesus. He's preaching the message of one God. That seems harmless enough. Most people in America would be okay with this. About that time, as he was preaching in Ephesus, there arose no little disturbance, which means a big fuss about the way. The way is the Christian faith. For a certain man named Demetrius, a silversmith who made silver shrines of Artemis, brought no little business, that means a lot of business, to the craftsmen. These he gathered together with the workmen. I have to see where I can see. In similar trades and said, men, you know that from this business we've made our wealth. Here's what he's saying. We have our little kiosk outside every temple of Diana and, and all these other gods. We have our little kiosk where we do the models and we sell them for 10 bucks a piece and the souvenirs and the trinkets and the, and the license plates with people's names on it with Diana above it. We're selling all this stuff and we're making a killing off of it. Do you know what happens? Do you know what happens, guys, if we let Paul preach this truth? Do you know what happens to our business? So there's a man I know, married to a lady I know, lives in a city nearby, 
And he gets this job, a high-pressure job in this business, very competitive. And in order to, to make his business succeed, he takes these men to gentlemen's clubs. And they go out and they drink in different places. And they party and they stay out till 2 in the morning, which is a killer on marriages. It's a killer on families. And he's been doing this and doing this. And he's made a, a lifestyle for himself very extravagant. And, and you challenge him over the years. And you say to him, you know, you don't need to be doing this. Yeah, but I've got this lifestyle. I've got to support for my family. I can't give it up. And I said, what about your faith? I just can't give up my lifestyle. He's now divorced. The family is gone. And they would tell you right now, I wish he would make less and love us more. I'll tell you right now that Jesus will cost you something. We're not going to put it in little print. We're not going to make it to where you don't know. We'll kind of, you know, trick you into this. Jesus is going to cost you something. The most obvious thing I can tell you is this. Before you become a believer, every penny you make is up to you to spend as you want to. And so you make every penny you want, and you get to keep it all, and you get to plan, and you get to budget, and you get to buy all this stuff based on the money you make. And when you become a Christian, if you're a serious Christian, you become a believer, one of the acts of worship that you're going to participate in every week is laying by and store a portion of what you made. That means some of that money that used to all be yours is no longer yours. He's going to cost you. I'll tell you this right now, and nobody in this church, no elder can tell you it's not true. Jesus is going to cost you something. And you either pay it or you don't. And you're like, well, I can see why they left. All right, you've got to hear the whole story, though. I want you to listen to this. I want you to read this. I'm not going to read it to you. I want you to read this screen, and I'm going to ask you two questions about it. This is Jesus' words. You read it. I'll give you a second. Jesus talking to his apostles. Amir, you read it? Have you read it? You weren't looking at the screen. You look at, you look at the screen, you read it. All right. Question number one. What might Jesus cost you? I want to hear it. I don't, this is not hypothetical. This is not rhetorical. I want to hear you open your mouth and say, so what might Jesus cost you? Louder. Basically everything. For some people, it's going to cost them family. Some people may cost marriages if you take your faith seriously. Some people may cost your job. It could just potentially be everything. He could cost you everything. And before you sign on, and before you say Jesus is Lord with your lips and actually confess him and actually commit to him and submit to him in the waters of baptism, please know it could cost you everything. And it's being told you up front. But here's two answers for this one. All right, question number two. What does Jesus say makes it worth it? Eternal life is one. I knew everybody would get that one. And listen, it's true. Heaven means so much to all of us. But it's pretty far away, so do I have to wait till then to get any benefit out of this choice I'm making? You're going to get a hundredfold of what you lost. You might lose a mother because she won't stand with you because she won't ab abide by your faith. Listen to me. You will gain a hundred mothers just in this church who will love you. And that's true. I've lived my life as a, as a guy who's going to learn to preach and I've got mothers everywhere and people who love me everywhere and they cook fried chicken for me without complaint. 
all over in Success, Arkansas, in Paragould, Arkansas, in Florida, these people who love me, I get Christmas cards from, and the only reason I know them is we share a common faith. You get a hundred things like that. I just want to tell you, if you're holding back because of the cost, I'm going to tell you something. You're ripping yourself off. You're getting gypped. Christian life is the best way to live, and you gain more than you'll ever lose. Second reason they ask him to leave is because there's something terribly uncomfortable about the power and authority of Jesus coming near you. He makes you so very self-conscious of what you're not. He makes you so very well aware of how far short you fall of what he wants from you. And that can sometimes make you so self-conscious and make you feel like you're ashamed of yourself all the time and you're feeling guilty all the time. And I get this feeling. When Peter was called as an apostle, he'd been fishing all night. He cleaned his nets. He was going to go home. And Jesus said, go back out there and throw your nets on the other side. And he does. And all this fish comes up. And Jesus, Peter finally realizes who it is. He jumps in the water. He goes up to Jesus and says, Jesus... Get away from me. That's a weird response. It's not what you expect out of an apostle. You know why he said it? The closer you come to Jesus, the more despicable you'll find yourself. If you think you're a good person, you have a difficult time coming to Jesus. I know more people who are good people who think they're good enough of themselves to get to heaven who will never confess the name of Jesus and be immersed because they're good enough already. And if they'll just take a few moments to let Jesus in their life, they will realize how much they believed an illusion. None of us is any good whatsoever. None. And you're like, well, you're going to make, you think I'm going to come forward and get that? It's how God views it. If you're enamored with how good you are, Jesus is going to be rough on you. If you humble yourself and realize that you are full of weaknesses and sins, Jesus will be gracious and restful to you. Shouldn't we be thrilled that Jesus reveals to us what's wrong? Shouldn't we be delighted that he's willing to get rid of the things that hurt us? Yeah, unless we really like those things. Every week, it's like this. I start every day with this prayer of the Holy Spirit praying the Holy Spirit and God, one of my areas of weakness is anger, just flares up once in a while. And what I want you to do, and this has been my prayer the last three months, and it's not working. God, I want when I get angry to say not one word. I don't want to say a word. And I'm not talking about cuss words here. I'm talking about when you articulate your anger, it just makes you feel it more keenly. When you say what you're angry about, it makes you feel justified in feeling that way and it strengthens that anger inside of you. And I want to strangle it to death by not giving it a voice. I want to knock it completely dumb. And I want to keep my mouth shut and not lecture that driver and not respond to that thing and not speak to my computer that way. And if I can get him to get me to keep my stinking mouth shut, I think I will be offering him a sacrifice that he delights in. And guys, I want to offer him something worth it and that costs me something. I want to give him something that he's not had before. My total attention in this. And it frustrates me every day when I can't. And I come to the end of the day, God, go, I'm going to try it again tomorrow. I'm not giving up. But listen to me. That whole time that I'm doing this, I never doubt whether he loves me, I'm valued, and I'm saved still. I never doubt that one moment. 
His promise is stronger than my performance. Just because you recognize your shortcomings and your sins does not call into question your eternal standing with Him. He is too good for that. While you're walking in the light as He's in the light, He keeps the blood of Jesus flowing in your life, and the moment you stumble is the moment the the blood comes in, and you are perfect the entire time, even in the midst of that sin. I know this is hard to understand. I'm just grasping this. But I want to take you back to a verse. I'm going to give you the ESV version, and then I'm going to give you the Spencer Furby version. Here it is. Top one is real Bible, right? For by a single offering... He has perfected for all time those who are being sanctified. By this one offering of Jesus, he's made them completely perfect who are in the process of being made perfect. My version. In Jesus, God counts perfect those who want to be and are trying to be better. In Jesus, he looks at us through the lens of Jesus, and when you have submitted yourself and you have been immersed in the waters of baptism, he looks at you through Jesus, and what he sees is, if you want to be perfect and you're working on just being better, he says, that's perfect for me. And that is why grace works, and that's why it motivates. And I'm tired of Christians going around feeling bad about themselves. Listen, I feel bad about myself, and I'll lecture myself on the side of the road. It has nothing to do with how I feel about me or what God feels about me. It's this, I want to offer him perfection. It's what he deserves. I'm under no illusion that I ever reach it, but there are moments. I'll be driving along and that guy cuts me off. I say not one word, and I go, there you are, God, that's for you, right? That's what I do. And that, if you're ever following me and you see me go, this, you know exactly what I just did. And if you're the guy in front of me, you're the beneficiary is all I can say. It's sort of like if you take a federal loan out for students and you decide you're going to go visit a certain or go work at a certain school district for about five years, they forgive that loan. And here's the beauty of it. You go and you work and you get paid for it, but during the time while you're working, that that debt disappears. That's the Christian life. As you're working for God, doing your best, your debt just disappears. He doesn't even see it. So I've just taken away two reasons why you don't want Jesus to stay in your life. Will he cost you? Yes. But not near as much as he'll get you. And will it be uncomfortable? And will it be convicting? Yes. But it's the most wonderful conviction in the world because it makes you better. And in the meantime, he, he sees you as perfect. That's how Jesus does it. Jesus crossed the sea that day. And yes, he was escorted out. But he left behind two witnesses that continue to tell people how Jesus works in their lives. And that's your job, by the way. He comes back to this area in Matthew chapter 15. He comes back to this vicinity and suddenly there's 4,000 men, men only. There are others, we don't know the count, that he feeds because he's he's just taught them. Where in Gentile territory, why, I should say, would 4,000 men know anything about Jesus to come and hear him? I think it's because of those two men who kept talking and jabbering about what Jesus had done for them. Jesus crossed the sea that day to meet two men who would forever represent him as the cleaner up of their lives. And today, he's after you. 
He's after you for the same reason. He wants to help you clean up your life and find greater joy than ever, but he wants to use you to reach the world. And that's why he, this morning, is right here at the top of this hill. And I hope you don't kick him out. I hope you let him stay. You'll never be the same, and you'll always be grateful. I'm sure you believe. You have to believe something about Jesus just to attend church. I hope that you're willing to confess him as Lord, and that's great, but that's not enough. You then submit your entire life to him in the waters of baptism as a symbol of what you're going to do the rest of your life as you submit your life to him. It just starts then, and continues forever, and he's going to use you to change the world. I hope you'll let him and not kick him out as we stand and as we sing.